Kids can be dismissed at this time. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. I need to apologize if I cough or for my voice this morning. We have a seven-month-old and her baby sniffles she decided to convey to the rest of the family. (coughs) And it has turned into a full-fledged annual sinus infection. And I'm negative for everything else, but I'm positive for a persistent cough. And I hope that it doesn't distract you this morning and that it doesn't keep us from hearing what God has to say uh, this morning. I wish that this had happened on the plague with the frogs, then you could have said that I had a frog in my throat, but thank you for the two people that laughed at that. I'll make a note, never make a joke again. Uh, But we're in Exodus chapter 8, verse 20 to 32, and we're looking at the fourth plague, the fourth miracle. The plagues are are miracles. The word that's used even in this text is going to be sign, and that means a miracle with a message, something that's being communicated and conveyed. And so uh, let me read the text to us, and then let's study this. Verse 20 of chapter 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians and they shall be filled with swarms of flies." And also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, they will stone us. Will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness. And sacrifice to the, land, to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far and pray or plead for me. And then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of the flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. So this plague is is interesting. We have some similar themes to previous plagues and other plagues that are still to come. And the first thing we're going to see this morning is one of those common patterns is the command warning invitation that God issues to Pharaoh. And then what we're going to see is the miraculous sign, and there is a unique part of this miraculous sign. All of them have a message. This particular one has a particular message as well. And then we're going to see Pharaoh respond, but it's going to be partial obedience, not full obedience. Just like we saw several weeks ago, he, he had this partial repentance, not full 
repentance. And then in contrast to him, Moses issues full obedience, single-minded focus on what God has promised and what God commands. And so those are going to be our four points this morning. Let's look at the first point, and that is the command, warning, invitation. That's in verses 20 and 21. Those verses capture what we have seen previously. First, that that Moses is to go out to Pharaoh early in the morning. Rise and go to Pharaoh. That's ha- that happened in, with the Nile, the first plague. The flies, this fourth plague. And the hail, the seventh plague. As we've talked about, the plagues are in groupings of three. The first three, the next three, and the next three. And the tenth stands as uh, its own independent pinnacle miracle. But at the beginning of each set of three, the first, fourth, and seventh... There's this language of rise and go out to meet Pharaoh. There's another pattern that happens here in this plague that's in seven of the ten plagues, and that is the command, an explicit command, to let my people go. Hear what it says. Rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh. He goes out, as he goes out to the water, and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Serve can be worship, it's translated sometimes worship, it's sometimes in the text is worship, sometimes it's serve, sometimes it's make sacrifices, but the command, the explicit command is let my people go. God is not interested in partial freedom for his people. We need to praise God for that, that he is not interested in partial freedom for his people. He wants full, complete freedom. Not negotiated freedom, not partial freedom, not half-hearted freedom. And what we're going to see in this text is that that's what Pharaoh offers, but that's not what God commands. That's important for us to remember. There's a clear command. God is trying to rescue, he is rescuing his people out of a land, a pluralistic society worshiping multitudes of gods. He's rescuing them out of this land and into the promised land where he will dwell among his people, where they will worship the one true God with single-minded focus. There's a massive message in that, that that's what he's rescuing them out of and into, and that's the command here that we see at the beginning of this text. But there's also a warning. He says, or else, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you. Judgment is on the horizon. This is a similar pattern to all of the prophets of the Old Testament, that judgment is coming unless you repent or relent. Judgment is coming, Israel. Judgment is coming, Babylon. Judgment is coming, Assyria, unless you repent or relent. And that's the same pattern that we see here in this text. And yet again, we're given another glimpse of God's amazing and startling grace. He doesn't just wipe Egypt off the face of the map. He doesn't just wipe Pharaoh off the face of the map. Instead, he gives him a gracious warning before the judgment, before it happens. And a number of times, that's going to be a pattern throughout these miracles. There's a number of times it's even explicit. Tomorrow this will happen. It's in our text. It's in the others. It's in the hail miracle as well. Tomorrow this will happen. And it's giving people an opportunity to relent and to repent. And yet again, we hear 
It's God's kindness. It's God's grace that's intended to lead us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that his grace is intended to cause, it's to melt our hearts, to relent and repent and turn in submission to him. That's what's intended to happen here in this text. And that's why we can argue that this command warning language is an invitation at the same time. It's an invitation to turn from self and to trust in God. It's an invitation to distrust self and to trust fully and completely in God. And that's what we're seeing yet again. This command warning, this judgment call is another invitation to turn and trust God. And a why. Again, we see there's a why. There's a motive. There's a reason behind it. So that you will know that I'm the Lord. Why is he acting in this way? Why is he sending this plague? Why is he acting in this way, in this miraculous way? So there is no doubt. So that we know. So that we're fully convinced that he is the one true God. And all the other things that we could possibly worship are insufficient in comparison to him. That leads us to the miraculous sign. And this particular miraculous sign with a particular message. God's vast, superior, sovereign power is on display yet again in this text. The first thing that he says is, I will send swarms of flies on you. Swarms in this case is not the same word as we saw with the frogs and with Israel and in Genesis chapter 1 that could be translated as teams or teeming or multitudes of creatures. It's not the same word. It's a different word for swarms. And in this context, it means a mixed multitude in context of flies of biting insects. A mixed multitude. It's going to be translated that way in Genesis chapter 12. That a mixed multitude of people went out with Israel. So in other words, what that means is Israel was led out of Egypt and into the, across the Red Sea and into the uh, wilderness and into the promised land. But also there was a mixed multitude. There was a multitude of other individuals, other people groups besides Israel. Some Egyptians that went out. And in this context, when it says swarms of flies, it's talking about a mixed multitude of biting insects. It's not super clear. Historians are not super clear which insect is this. Most point to what was common in that region, which was the dog fly. We see them around here as horse flies. Dog flies, horse flies feed off of blood. They feed off of flesh, off of animals, and off of humans. Some commentators even add that, you know, maybe there were, there were dog flies, there were hornets and wasps and bees and every other kind of winged insect. And then there was another animal or another uh, insect that they pointed to, and that was the scarab beetle. And in, in this particular beetle was known throughout this area. It was revered by Egyptians, but it was known to devour everything. And it fed off of blood and flesh as well. But it also ate your furniture and your clothes and everything else. And that's why some commentators, when they, when they see that it was mixed in, multitude of swarming flies everywhere and on every square inch of the land, that's why they say it was probably flies, it was probably beetles, it was probably hornets and probably bees. It was a massive multitude of billions upon billions of these biting insects. This is why... It's likely 
why the psalmist in Psalm 78, 45 says, he sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them, which bit them, which ate them, which consumed them. That's what's happening here in this text. Whatever it is, they appear in overwhelming, staggering numbers. So the insect, whatever it is, is common to the area, but the volume is not. The volume is staggering, and it's emphasized multiple times. Hear it a couple of different ways. You can see it in this list here behind me. In 21b, they will come on you and your servants and your people, similar to the frogs. They will come into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians will be filled with the swarms. So they won't just be swarms out in the fields. They won't just be swarms near the Nile. They will be swarms in your home multitudes, billions and thousands and millions and every number, a gazillion that you could come up with. They are everywhere, outside and inside your homes and in your, where you live. And they will also cover, up, cover every square inch of the ground on which you step. Verse 24, swarms, they will come into the house of Pharaoh and his servants and they will be throughout, they came throughout the land, it says, so many that the land was ruined. Now, land is mentioned twice there. This is going to be an important word in our text this morning. Land in this context is personified. It doesn't just mean they were in the fields and the crops. They didn't just devour the crops and the fields. It's personified. It means they came devouring everything. Man, woman, child, crops, fields, possessions, homes, everything was being ruined and devastated. Everyone and everywhere was experiencing ruin and devastation. This is important for us to remember. They couldn't eat without flies getting in their mouth. They couldn't sleep without being covered with this mixed multitude of biting insects. This is the first plague miracle that is actually, it's actually in, 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 in biting and taking effect on the person, that they couldn't have done their harvesting, they couldn't have eaten, they couldn't have slept, they couldn't have gone inside or outside or anywhere without these flies biting them and consuming them and ruining. That was an experiential mass ruin and devastation. And a couple of observations. First, this is absolutely beyond a natural occurrence. It's clear. The text makes it clear. This is a supernatural occurrence. One is that they come instantly. Two is that they are there with such volume. And then at the end of this, they're gone instantly at the word of the Lord. This is a supernatural action of Yahweh. He is, he is doing something here. His power is on display. But as we said, with all of the miracles, there is a message in the miracle. It's important. And the other thing that I think is important for us to remember in observation is, as we've said throughout this, Exodus 12, Numbers 33, both reference that God's actions on, uh, in Egypt in these miracles is an explicit statement, an explicit judgment on the gods of Egypt. This is an explicit statement on the gods of Egypt. Now, it's not clear which god is under attack in this situation. Because there's a mixed swarming multitudes, it could have been flies and beetles and other things, it's not clear. 
One could be the, the god Kepra. The god Kepra was represented by the scarab beetle. There's a scarab beetle face and then a human or man's body. Kepra, the beetle, the, the reason that they revered the beetle was that they would, they would roll these, these balls of dung and they would roll them up and they, would, they, they looked at them and they saw them rolling this sphere and they thought, maybe, maybe this, is, this is how our sun is, is rolled up and comes up in the morning. And the god Kepra represented the god who made this, the sun come up in the morning among the other gods of the sun, this was the one that made it come up anew each morning. And so Kepra represented newness of life. Kepra represented this new life, sometimes also represented eternal life and reincarnation. It's not clear if Kepra is under attack, but what we know is that the gods are under attack in Egypt. And what is clear is that their gods are powerless to protect them from Yahweh, that their gods are powerless before Yahweh. And more importantly, and this is the theme throughout this text, their gods always lead to ruin and devastation. And this is an important message for you and I. As we talk about the gods of Egypt, we have gods just like them. They may not be beetles rolling a ball of dung. But they are and they will lead to ruin and devastation. Whatever it is that we're worshiping other than God, it will always lead to ruin and devastation. The frogs, they died and they were a stench. Whatever we're worshiping other than God is a stench. With the Nile, it turned to blood and they were digging empty wells for water and life and satisfaction. There is only one who is living water who will satisfy us. And so what we see here is that their gods are being put on notice. And, and the people are intended to hear that message. Your gods will lead to ruin. Your gods will lead to devastation. But in contrast, and it's clear in this text, in contrast, where God dwells, where he resides, in and amongst his people, where he's exalted, there is life, and there's peace, and there's protection. And that's the unique part of this miracle, and it's in verses 21 down to 27. The volume of flies is absolutely supernatural. It's clear, it's clear evidence that God is at work, that God's doing something here by his power, by his hand. That's absolutely. But what's unique about this, par this parable, this, this plague, this story, this miracle, what's unique about this is that God sets apart the land of Goshen and that that is the only place where these flies do not attack. And that's important. As we study all of the miracles and all of the plagues, we're intended to say, what's unique about this? And, and this is the unique factor from the other previous miracles. The swarms were prevented from invading the land of Goshen where my people, God says, where my people dwell. In verse 22, it's, it, it, this is literally a miracle within a miracle. He, he says, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. And then he says in verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. This is an important theme that comes up for the first time in this 
this miracle in the, in the fourth miracle, but it's an important theme. This will be explicit, this idea of setting apart his people, this idea of making a division. Elsewhere it's going to say make a distinction. It will appear explicitly in five of the plagues. And what most commentators say is that it's actually implied in the other five plagues. So out of the ten plagues, this is an important theme. That God is setting apart, making a division, or making a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. It's in the flies, it's in the livestock, it's in the hail, it's in the darkness, and it's in the death explicitly, those miracles. But it's implied in the other five. And here's what's most fascinating about this. The phrase, set apart, or make a division, make a distinction, it literally means... I will redeem, or I will deliver. It can, it it literally, look, you have a little tick mark in your Bible, some kind of footnote that says what it means. I am setting a redemption is what it's often translated as. What does that mean? I am setting my people apart. I am redeeming my people. I will redeem my people. I will deliver my people. I am coming to rescue my people. And this is what's most unique and most fascinating here about this. We have to remember what redemption means. Redemption means the purchase price for a slave. What is Israel in this context but slaves in the midst of Egypt? Slaves to an evil tyrant, serpent king. And what is God doing but coming in their midst to pay a price to rescue the slaves out of slavery and to set them distinct and apart in a promised land where they will worship the one true God. What we're getting in this miracle, in this plague, is a foretaste. It's a little micro story in the grand, greater story of God. When we back up to Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 3, we see that God created everything, but he particularly created a people to know him and worship him. But then because of sin, because of rebellion, because of deceit by a tyrant, serpent, king, sin enters the world, and now man is born in bondage to sin. But in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God promises redemption. He promises to send a redeemer and through his bruising, through his wounding, he will crush the serpent's head. When we go forward to Genesis chapter 12, fast forward all the way to the end of of Deuteronomy, really all of of that, the, the, the latter half of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, it's redemption not promised, it's redemption pictured. What happened with Israel? In in Genesis chapter 12, God establishes a relationship with Abraham, and he establishes a people to know him and worship him and reflect him in the world. But by the end of Genesis, what happens? They've fallen into bondage and slavery to a serpent king, a tyrant serpent king. And now what's happening in the book of Exodus and through the rest of the story, but God is coming to redeem his people, to rescue them out of the bondage and slavery to the serpent king and to set them apart in a promised land where they will worship him singularly 
and holy. And what do we have in just this little micro story, but the micro version of that story? And all of it is intended to point us forward to the New Testament, where you and I begin to realize we too are born in sin, separated from God as slaves to sin under the rule of a tyrant king, that the God, little g God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But Jesus, God in the flesh, came to dwell in our midst to rescue us out of bondage to sin and slavery and death and to set us apart as a unique people, worshiping him as sons and daughters, ultimately giving us a greater promised land, the kingdom of God, where we will dwell with him and he in our midst. This story is so profound. It's so small and yet so massive. We're getting the entire story of the Bible in this one miracle. And what's interesting, and I want to make sure that we don't miss it, how does God redeem? How does God redeem in each of these, these the, 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 the Redemption promised, redemption pictured, and redemption accomplished. How does God redeem in all of those? How does he redeem in this text? He comes to dwell in their midst. He comes into a fallen, broken world to rescue and to redeem out of that fallen, broken world. Sandwiched between 22a and 23a is 22b. Don't miss it. Why is God doing this? How does God rescue? How does he redeem? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. That I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, there's going to be flies and carnage and chaos and ruin and devastation everywhere except... For in Goshen, among my people, Israel. Why? Why? Was it because of their volume? Because they were so numerous? Because the Israelites, there were so many of them? Was it because they, 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 they were so wise or so strong? Was it because of the quality of their bug spray? No, absolutely not. Why? Flies, you understand this. We know this. We're about to enter into a season where we're going to be inundated. There will be flies all over the place in Baldwin County. And you know they're no respecter of boundary lines. You swat one this way, and what does he do? He comes over here. You swat him that way, he comes back over here. They're, they are not respecters of boundary lines. Not unless they answer to Yahweh. Why are they not in the midst of Goshen, in the midst of the people of God? You say, well, Neil, because God commanded them not to be there. Obviously. Right. But I want to suggest, I think it's more than just simply God commanded them not to be there. I think it's in this verse. It's because God is in their midst. Because God is dwelling in their midst. When you look at that phrase, in the midst of the earth... It literally means in the midst of the land. Some of you have other footmarks, and it says Yahweh is in the land. Yahweh has arrived. Yahweh is present. And where Yahweh is present, death runs. Ruin runs. Carnage runs. Carnage, death, ruin does not exist. Where 
God resides, where God takes up residence, where God dwells, there is not ruin, there is life. But in the land where he's rejected, in the land where he is not exalted, in the land where he is defamed, there's death. I think that we're being told something infinitely profound here about where God dwells, where God takes up residence, where God dwells, there is life. And where he's rejected, there's death and chaos and carnage. And a question that we have to ask ourselves is, has God taken up residence in the home of our hearts? Because that's what we're promised, that's what we're offered in the New Testament in Jesus. Has God taken up residence in the home of your heart in the person and the work of Jesus? Have you given him keys and title to your heart? Here's what we're seeing in this, these verses. The living God of the universe has come near into the heart of broken and fallen Egypt to rescue his people. And he's doing two things. He's showing the Egyptian gods to be powerless, weak, and impotent. He's showing them that, that, that their gods will always lead to ruin and always lead to devastation, but not so with the God Yahweh. He is infinitely power, but he's powerful, but he's also intimately personal. And where he is and who we, when we worship him, the worship of him, submission to him, surrender to him, leads to life. This is, again, the storyline of the Bible. The temptation at the fall in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 was life outside of God leads to life. Living apart from God, out from under his rule, that leads to life. Living, living anti-God, living my own, I'm a better king and ruler. I know what's best for my life. That will lead to life. I know what will satisfy me. We think that will lead to life. But what's the truth? It leads to death. The entire storyline of the Bible is no, submission, surrender, full obedience to God leads to life. Rejecting self and trusting him. And so I wonder if you see what's happening in this text is what's hap what happens in the New Testament. God graciously invades our broken and fallen world in the person and work of Jesus offering rescue and redemption to you and I from the slavery and bondage to sin and the tyrant serpent king that we serve. Offering life and peace and hope and protection. Setting us apart so that we can live fully free. Do you know this morning the peace of God and the peace of Jesus? Do you know this morning the joy of God in the joy of Jesus? Do you know the protection, the redemption, the rescue of God in the rescue, redemption, and protection of Jesus? Has God taken up residence in the home of your heart? Does he have your full affection and your full allegiance? And that's what leads us to the next point here with Pharaoh's partial obedience, our third point. How does Pharaoh respond to all of this. In verse 25, he says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. 
Sounds positive, sounds like improvement, sounds like we're making progress here with Pharaoh. It sounds like he's letting them go. It sounds like he's going to, this is good news. But the language is important here. Go worship your God within the land. Pharaoh is not surrendering to God. He's not surrendering to Yahweh. He's not submitting before him. He, he's letting, he, he's giving partial obedience. The command, remember, was let my people go, period, full stop. Full freedom, not partial freedom, not negotiated freedom, not bargain freedom, full freedom. And what Pharaoh is offering here because of his partial obedience is partial freedom. There's two observations here. He says within the land, and that's the indicator that this is not full obedience. But there's two observations, two implications I think we can glean from this for ourselves. First, by by offering a concession, by, by bargaining, Pharaoh is attempting to retain some level of control on the situation some level of control on his life, and thereby some sort of leverage on God. Remember when we talked about with the frogs, he gave partial repentance. It wasn't full-fledged, full-hearted, full-throated repentance. It was, it was partial repentance. What we're seeing here is partial obedience. And by retaining a little bit, by, by, by only offering a little bit, he's retaining control. He, he's attempting to retain control of his life and control of the circumstances and later he's going to say, here he says, within the land, later he's going to say, okay, you can go make sacrifices to your God, but in verse 28, but don't go far. In both cases, it's partial obedience, and it's an attempt to retain control. So in other words, Pharaoh is just like you and I. He's just like you and I. When it comes to obedience before God, when God calls us to obedience... He's just like us. Isn't this our daily struggle? The struggle to give up control to God? The the struggle to trust that God knows better, that God knows more, that that His way, that His commands are actually better for me than my little land of control, the little kingdom of self? Isn't this our daily experience? Isn't this the daily wrestling match that we have? Is which kingdom will I submit to? The kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? The rule of me or the rule of Yahweh? Which kingdom will I serve? Isn't that our daily struggle and our daily battle? Isn't that the reason that we cling so tightly to the reins of our lives? And think about the reason why. What's the motive? Well, if I relinquish control... If I give complete control, complete obedience and allegiance to God, then he, if I submit to Jesus as king, well, that means he's king over everything, Neil. And, and that's terrifying because what might he ask me to do? Where might he ask me to go? What might he ask me to give up? What might he ask me to say? And that's terrifying, isn't it? Precisely because our hearts are bent on, on control, on being our own kings, our own lords, and our own masters. If I relinquish control, what might God do or demand of me? That's one of our major fears. Here's another major fear. What might people think of me? 
if I'm obedient, if I submit, if I relinquish control to him and he asks me to do or to say something, then what might other people think of me? Is this not where the rubber meets the road in the daily Christian experience? What, 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 what might my boss or my employees or my, my coworkers think if I, if I remain true and faithful to God and I don't say yes to what they want to do or what they suggest, but I say yes only to Yahweh? What, what might they do? They're going to think I'm in... I'm a heel. They're going to think I'm, 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 I'm an idiot. They're going to think all these terrible things about me. Hear your heart as you make that confession, or as I make it for you. Hear your heart. Hear what you're fearing most. Hear what you're worried about most. What, here's what you're saying. God, I'll follow you as long and as, as far and everywhere you want to go as long as you don't ask me to give up this. I'll worship you as long as you don't ask me to say that to so-and-so, as long as you don't ask me to share that with so-and-so, as long as you don't ask me to, to, to give up whatever this is. Hear what you're saying in that moment. What you're saying in that moment is, I love this more than I love you. I want this more than I want you. Let me ask you, spouses, those of you that are married, will that work in your marriage? I will love you one hour a week, two hours at best on Sundays, wife, but not the rest of the week. The rest of the week's mine, and I get to do with it what I want to do. Or let's reverse it. I'll love you all week, seven days a week, except for Friday nights, 7 to 9 p.m. That one's mine. How's that going to go over with your spouse? You realize that marriage is a picture, is a parable of the kind and the, per the type of relationship we're intended to have with God. We learn about God, we, we, we learn the kind of relationship we have to Him, and that's informing how we're supposed to live in our marriages, but we also learn from marriage as a parable about the way we're intended to live. And we're intended to live with full devotion, full submission, full surrender, full love, undivided hearts and attentions, affections, and lives with our spouses. And if we were to say, hey, I love you all the time in all the ways except for this one thing, I can't give this one thing up, then we're not actually fully obeying and fully submitting. And what God requires is full submission, full love, full devotion. And that's what we're seeing, and that leads to the second observation and implication here. What this text teaches us is that God expects full surrender, full submission, full obedience and the second observation, implication for you and I, is that partial obedience, bargained obedience, negotiated obedience is not obedience. It's disobedience. Holding one hand behind our back and saying, I worship you, God, is still holding on to an idol that we love more than God. It's not obedience. Negotiating obedience with him. I'll follow you, but just don't ask me to ever share about you. That's not full surrender. That's attempting to retain control of your life. I'll follow you, but I don't want anybody to think less of me for following you. That's not full surrender. That's not full trust in who God is. God's not interested in partial, bargain, negotiated obedience. He's looking for full surrender, full submission, full obedience. Let's work through a few examples of this in the Bible. The first and greatest commandment, the, the first and greatest commandment, you shall have only a few gods before me. Is that what it says? No. 
You shall have no other gods before me. What about the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.5? Love the Lord your God with half your heart, with half your mind, with half your life, with half your devotion. Is that what it says? Absolutely not. It says love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strengths, with all your moments. And literally the text, it means all your thoughts, all your moments, all your actions, all your attitudes. Or let's take a New Testament command. Love your enemies only when they're nice to you. Is that what it says? No. Love your enemies even when they insult and revile and persecute you. Go down the list. You could look at Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, it's okay to look at a little bit of porn. Is that what it says? No. Negotiated. God, I'll follow you, but, but don't ask me to give this thing up. Bargained. Partial obedience is not obedience. It's not what God calls for. It's not what God commands. It's not what God demands. He asks for full surrender. God is my little sin, my little pet sin is not hurting anybody. It, it, nobody knows about it. It's a secret sin. That's why I call it a secret sin. It's nobody's going to touch it. Nobody's going to see it. Nobody's ever going to know. It's not hurting anybody. I'll give you everything else. I'll give you the public perception. That's not what God calls for. He wants full title to your heart. Full title to your life. There's a little bitty book, it's a parable, it's called My, Christ, My Heart, Christ's Home, maybe you've read it, it's six pages, it's super brief, super short. Presbyterian minister wrote this as a parable, as an analogy for, for what, what it looks like for Christ to move into the heart and move into the home. He, he talks about Christ moving into the, to the home and the first thing he did before Christ showed up at the door is he cleaned up a little bit around the house because he didn't want Jesus to see all of the stuff in his house. And then Christ comes in, Jesus comes in, and, and he takes him into the living room, and, and he's showing him things. But he, the more he spends time with Jesus, the more he starts to realize, I don't think that I should have that thing over there, and I need to remove that. And so he moves it. And the more time he spends with Jesus in the different rooms of his house, the more he begins to see that his life does not align with Jesus. And he begins to remove those things from his heart, from his home. And then one day he comes home and Jesus is standing outside the closet at the top of the stairs, the little closet that no one ever enters. And he says, Jesus, you can't have that one. You can have every other room in the house, but you can't have that one closet. That's my secret place. That's the place that I don't even talk to my spouse about. I don't even tell anyone about. Nobody knows about that. I, you can't possibly go in there. You can't, you can't have authority there. But as he spends time with Jesus, he begins to realize, no, Jesus needs access to the, even the secret crevices of his heart. He lets him into the closet. And what does Jesus do there but show infinite grace and in his infinite purity? He cleans the deepest, darkest spots of his heart and his life. And Robert Unger, the writer of this, begins to realize, he says, wait a second. If he can do that there, then why not ask him to come back down to the living room and go over to the office and into the kitchen and do that same thing, clean completely. You know what? Actually, I don't need Jesus just to come in and clean. I need him to own title to my heart. Jesus, can I sign over my house to you? Can I sign over my heart to you? You are ruler. You are king. I submit to you. You have your way with my money, with my living room, with my home, with my secret closet, with everything. 
And so I ask again, has Jesus come to take up residence in the home of your heart? Now here, I understand some of you are thinking this. Neil, you have heaped up an enormous burden on my shoulders. That is an impossible task. You just ran through the Shema and talked about loving God with every single thought and every single moment and asked if I'd do that. And of course I don't. Neil, do you? No, of course I don't. You just ran through the Ten Commandments and act like, 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 like I, just, I can't keep those things. Right. I realize some of you are thinking right now, I can't believe the enormous burden that you've heaped up on my shoulders. That's an enormously high standard, Neil. I can't keep the Shema perfectly. I can't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. I can't love my enemies always, all the time, even when they wrong me. I can't do that. Finally. Finally. You now understand your desperate need for a perfectly obedient Savior. You now understand your desperate need for the only one who has ever fully loved God at every single moment, with every single thought, with every single action, with every single affection. You finally understand your need for the only one who has ever kept the Ten Commandments and the law perfectly, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, John chapter 8. You now understand your desperate need for Jesus. You now see he is your only strength, your only way, your only protection. He gives full obedience, full worship and affection to God. And what we see here is Moses, Pharaoh does not, and then that leads us to Moses does. And who Moses ultimately points us to. And that's our last point here. Moses is full Obedience. Once again, where Pharaoh failed, Moses succeeds. Where Pharaoh failed to obey, failed to submit, failed to, to surrender, Moses does. And that's intended to point us to something more, someone greater. Let's see this in the text. First, Pharaoh says, you can worship your God within the land. And then he later is going to say, you can worship your God, just don't go far. He's putting boundaries on what, what they can do and what they can't do and on his obedience. But look at what Moses says in verse 26. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so. And then he gives this explanation for the offerings that we sacrifice are an abomination. The animals that they're going to sacrifice are the animals that Egypt works worships. It, it would be an abomination. It, it is a confession and it is an amazing uh, respectful disagreement of authority in this verse, but the bigger point here is it would not be right to do so, and then it's echoed down in verse 27. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and the sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. We must do what God has commanded us to do, period, and nothing else. And I'm not worried about what you think about that, Pharaoh. I'm not worried about what Egypt thinks about that. I'm going to be obedient to God and God alone. Moses objects, we must do what God has told us to do, and to do otherwise would not be right. We must obey God, and to do otherwise would not be 
right. What's going on here? Beggars can't be choosers, Moses. He's given you a national holiday, a day off from slavery. He's given you a moment of reprieve. He's letting you go and worship. Just don't go far, Moses. What's the big deal? Just don't don't commit adultery. Just, Just do a little bit in your head. What's the big deal? What's the harm? You see, Moses here understands something. He recognizes two things. The first thing is Moses is beginning to appreciate and express confidence in the absolute promises of God. God did not promise partial freedom. That's not what God is intending for us. Listen, a couple of different references. Exodus 3, 7 to 8. We really go back to Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abraham he would give, make him a great nation and give him the land of Canaan, the promised land. And then Exodus 3, 7, and 8, God's going to come and rescue. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to God, to, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanites. It goes on the list of other, other nations as well. Exodus 6, 3, 16 to 17, I'm going to come down, I'm going to rescue. Verse 17, I will promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, I will bring my people out. It is me who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. What's going on in this, this, this action here, this obedience that Moses is exhibiting, he's exhibiting confidence in the, full, in the promises of God. Full confidence in the promises of God. It would not be right for us to worship God as though he's one among all the other gods. It would not be right for us to worship him here only in Egypt. He has commanded, and he has promised, and he's commanded that we must leave Egypt behind. And we must enter into the promised land and worship him and him alone. Moses, remember Moses, the negotiator from the early chapters that we studied? Moses has changed in this moment. Remember, Moses was the negotiator. God, I, don't, I, I can't go. I'm not the speaker. You can't send me. I send somebody else. Moses is not negotiating. He's exhibiting trust in the promises of God. And that affects his obedience to the commands of God. And that's the second thing we see here. He also is expressing full obedience to the commands of God. Pharaoh says, go, worship within the land. Go, just don't go far. Moses could have compromised. Don't you see? It looks like a win. It looks like Moses could, this is just Moses, come on. But Moses doesn't compromise. Moses obeys fully. He says, no, God said we must leave Egypt and do so as he tells us. God is not just another one of the many gods that we could worship. He is the one true God and we must submit to him. And we must obey him. And we won't compromise on that. And he's promised to rescue us. He's not just another one of the whiny gods looking for a little bit more attention. He is the one true God who deserves all of our devotion and all of our worship. He is I am. He has no equal. He has no rival. And we will worship him and him alone. 
Moses knows that God is not interested in half-hearted partial obedience because God is not interested in half-hearted partial freedom. And here's what we begin to see. If we've been paying attention, it's been hinted at, it's even said explicitly this morning, Moses is pointing us forward to a true and better mediator. He's pointing us forward to Jesus who perfectly obeyed on our behalf, who did not compromise, who had every opportunity to compromise. But he submitted to the will of God, to the word of God, to the promises of God, to the truth of God on our behalf to offer redemption and rescue. Don't you see, Moses is pointing us to Jesus, the only one who has ever fully obeyed, the only one who's ever fully submitted and fully surrendered to the commands of God. Don't you see that he is our only way of ever experiencing the full freedom of God? As we submit to him, we experience, in his perfect obedience, we experience the full freedom that God promised, that God offers. Has this been the case for you? Have you surrendered? Have you done that? Have you submitted to Jesus as king? Have you given him title to your heart? To every room and every place? Great if you have. Wonderful. Praise God if you have. If you're a believer... The question for you this morning is, is this your daily practice? Is this your moment-by-moment practice? Are you daily surrendering to him as king and ruler? Are you daily, daily submitting to his rule and his reign in your life? When he asked us to come and die, it wasn't a one-time occurrence. It was a lifetime occurrence. Daily die to self, to the reign and rule of the kingdom of self. Is your prayer, not my will, but your will be done? Is it daily? Is it momentarily? Is that your daily? Do you see this is your strength? This is your hope for fighting sin? To say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No longer me. No longer my way. Not my way. Not my will. Not my right. Not my strength. But yours, Jesus. Yours alone. As the text closed, we see in verses 29 down to 32, Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, Pharaoh, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarm of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, and what did he do? He prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from the servants, and from his people, and not one remained. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart, and this time also, and did not let the people go. Once again, Moses does what Pharaoh refuses to do. He turns and takes everything to God. He turns and puts his full trust in God his full loyalty, his full allegiance in God and God alone. He does what Pharaoh refuses to do, and he prays and he asks God to remove the devastation and ruin of the flies. Don't you see? He's pointing us to Jesus, who, who came fully obedient to God, with his heart and affections fully set on God, to redeem us, and what does he intercede and do? He doesn't turn away the wrath of the flies. He turns away the wrath of God. 
He doesn't intercede to, to remove the ruin of flies and the devastation of flies. He turns to, to God and he removes the ruin and devastation of sin and death. Have you run to Jesus for refuge from the chaos? Is he the island of Oasis, the land of Goshen, in the midst of chaos and carnage of your life? Is he the one you're submitting to? We talked a little bit about repentance a couple of weeks ago. Do you recognize, I'm tempted to trust in this thing, Lord, for my strength and for my salvation, but I recognize the weakness of this thing. That's the next step. And only you are the one that can rescue and provide. Have you done that and are you daily doing that? Have you entrusted your soul to him? Are you today entrusting yourself and all the chaos that you face to your strong provider and protector, Jesus? Does he have your full, undivided, single-minded attention, affection, and obedience? We obey because of his lavish grace, the fact that he intervened, he came in our midst, and he died. That's our motivation for why we obey. I can't help but, as Brian prayed earlier, let's pray. Father, thank you so much.